Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Fitness Philadelphia podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Herding, and I have the absolute pleasure of talking to Philadelphia's best sports medicine physicians, physical therapists, strength coaches, and personal trainers. These movement professionals are the leaders driving the healthcare revolution in the Philadelphia region. During each episode, we gain valuable insight into how these individuals are changing the game. Please stop by precisionperformancept.com backslash fitness with a PH Philadelphia to subscribe and learn more. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. John Herding. I'm here with Fitness Philadelphia podcast, and we we have a great guest today, someone that I admire, and we've been friends and colleagues for a long time now, Dr. Chris Lieb. How are you, Chris? Doing well. How are you, John? Good. I'm particularly excited for this podcast just because we haven't, we were just talking, we haven't caught up in a while and it gives us a chance to do that. But then also just to um, let everybody know the great things that you're doing as a fitness professional, doctor of physical therapy with the business that you've created for yourself. Can can you give us, because you'll give us a better background and bio and introduction in yourself than I ever will, would you be able to give the listeners a a brief bio and just how you came to be in this space, what your motivations are and now who you currently serve and, and, you know, the unique space and fitness that your business now holds. Yeah. Like you said, I'm a uh, doctor of physical therapy. I graduated from the university of Scranton in 2006, went back, got my doctorate in 2012. Yeah. I just had that formal education, but as soon as I started working in 2006, I, also, I worked in a gym space, and the uh, first continuing education certification I got was my CSCS. So that gave me a little bit more confidence to start to venture into personal training. So, you know, from day one, I was pretty much both a physical therapist and a personal trainer with my, you know, my more of my hours going towards clinical physical therapy work. But then I started getting more and more clients on the personal training side of things. And I just naturally saw the two meld together where the time that I was able to spend with people in personal training allowed me to think differently than I did in a busy clinic. But like when a busy clinic, I got to see more people. So I, I got to have more presentations under my belt. So it, I found it to be very beneficial to have both happening at the same time, you know, throughout my career. And that's just developed to the point now where it, it's really hard for me to separate the two, it feels like, you know, because at this point I have my own business that is a combination. It's like a hybrid of personal training and physical therapy where I will see people that need physical therapy. They'll have a diagnosis. I will treat them as a physical therapist, but pretty routinely they become, you know, long-term personal training clients once the initial treatment of the injury is stabilized. I don't want to say like cured because I don't, I often don't see that happening in the the continuum I'm working with where it just becomes sort of ebbs and flows or episodes of injury that are when people are in the kind of continuum of fitness, it doesn't turn into what I was tending to see in a clinic where it would be like someone would come in and feel like they were a patient and and feel like they were really limited and more focused on what their injury couldn't allow them to do as opposed to appreciating all the things they still could do. So, you know, at this point, it's hard to say, like, I'm definitely, I still have my education. I'm still doing continuing education as a physical therapist. I still see a lot of people that have acute injuries and and chronic injuries, but I I do a lot of work also as a personal trainer. And I I see it more as like a kind of a continuum than two separate scopes at this point. 
Yeah. And I think that's what's brought us together a little bit because we think about movement the same way. Like it's all this continuum of movement and injury doesn't necessarily mean you have to stop training, but where in the spectrum are you fitting in this continuum of movement? And that's what helps make you unique is you have an education in just a broad education in movement diagnosis and, you know, injury prevention and injury rehab where you can, a person can just plug into the continuum at a certain point and you can take them from where they are to where they want to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, the other cool thing about the last, you know, I've been in business now since 2014, but really since 2017, it's just been me and my, my own space. And I've, I've spent a lot of time with the same clients now, and that is not something we get the opportunity to do a lot in a clinical setting because we have this discharge looming always with a, mm-hmm. you know, physical therapy and with, with insurances. But I've had the opportunity now to work with clients for five, six years, just you know, a couple of days a week. And you just get to know people better, but you, you also get to see, I think, the, the continuum of health a little bit differently in that, you know, when, when people seem to be better, they're not better forever, right? So, mm-hmm. and, you know, we see that clinically where people will keep coming back for, for similar things, but it's almost like without that understanding of, of how things kind of ebb and flow, you just look at someone who's coming back like, oh, they didn't do their homework or something like that. And and I'm I'm much more like I guess sympathetic to that now, where it's just like it's almost like a, a normal part of whether you're healthy or not that you're going to get some ebbs and flows, you're going to get some ups and downs as far as injury is concerned, right? And there has to be a kind of an ongoing process of evaluating your fitness, evaluating your health, and so uh, like what I, I feel like I'm more of a consultant in many ways now than I am a like a consultant of fitness than, than I am like a specific programmer of exercise or like diagnoser uh, of pain, because oftentimes that's what's necessary. Like, like I'm trying to build my education so that I can help others understand things maybe from a way that, that I'm, I've had some now experience perceiving, but I'm trying to put myself in the trenches as much as possible so that I can feel like I have a leg up that I can pass on to the clients now. So in many ways, like it does feel like I'm, I'm doing less of like like programming. Sometimes it's better when it's sort of like you're not over being picky with it and trying to change it too often. Like you're sort of letting it progress gradually. So it's when things come up that I can be a consultant to say like, okay, you don't have to, you know, look at this in a way where you need to stop the progress you've made. We can just sort of easily veer around this. Or when there's a, you know, discussion about like weight loss, like I don't, I can give my insight, but it, ultimately it's going to be up to the the person to, to make the changes. But, you know, having that on a regular basis where I get to talk to people that have become friends in many ways, like it's, I feel like they're, I'm, I'm able to be more patient with people as they make changes. And it's amazing how long it can take to, to see changes. And then all of a sudden they're in front of you and you're like, wow, like look at where they've come compared to where they were. But it's not this like quick changes, like, you're not curing people. You're not making people like, you know, totally different. Like when you see transformation photos on Instagram, they're photos, they're static moments mm-hmm. in time, but that's not the reality of things when you you have a dynamic person that you're seeing for years. A hundred percent. And I think there are so many little nuggets of gold in that, in what you just described over the last couple of minutes. The first one being how you said like the programming is steady and it takes time where I think that typical physical therapy experience, and this is going to touch on something else where it's segmented and it's almost, it's dictated by insurance companies where it's four, six, eight, 
12 week blocks or whatever. And if the patient's not better in that time, it doesn't matter. The insurance company will dictate that the therapy is over, right? Yeah. Or there's almost an expectation from a person that, oh, I'm going to be here for four, four to six weeks, two to three times a week. And I'm expecting these things to happen in that time. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, but everybody's an N of one. So you can has, have these expectations based on research or whatever. But then when the insurance company get involved, you can't always do the things that you want to do to make sure there's a lasting change, right? Um, and very often it's throwing a Band-Aid on something and then the person's not fully better, but they've exhausted their benefits or they've exhausted what the insurance company deems appropriate. And then they're just, they're discharged based on the insurance company, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I think what you've said, and, and also an, another point I want to make with that is that, and typically it just in my experience in a physical therapy clinic, it's we're throwing random, it's almost like random exercises. We're changing the exercise protocol every single time someone comes into the clinic. And sometimes the patient views that as an expectation. Whereas we all know good programming, you need to stay on a particular programming that that's going to give you results and see, help you see lasting change over four to six week period. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think what you just stated in there, where when you can get someone on a good sustainable program that doses exercise appropriately, that's when they start to see change and change takes time. And it can't always be segmented into these four to six week blocks. Right. Absolutely. And I, and I think what you've done based on your pay model is you've been able to eliminate the silos of Hey, you know what, Chris, I'm an insurance based physical therapist. The insurance just exhausted the benefits. Now you can take over because they don't want to stay with me anymore. And they want more outside of what insurance would deem appropriate. Right. You know, because so you're able to take the PT and go right into training where someone in an insurance based model, we need to very often refer out to someone that's not taking insurance if a person wants to continue training. So you've been able to eliminate the silos to help people get lasting change through good programming that'll help them become stronger, make the lasting change that we need to make sure they get what they want. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's ultimately about giving people options. So I I did attempt the insurance model for about a year and I just, I'm glad I did it because I learned about, you know, like how, how that works, like where that fits and and how it really wasn't the most beneficial for me and for the the model that I was trying to, to work with. However, like, I don't see that there's anything wrong with it. I just think one thing that happened in our education is that so much of like what we learn is actually based around insurance, which I think that becomes a problem. So instead of looking at insurance, as just like a supplemental pay model, right? Like where your patients get to use their insurance to help them pay for care. We look at it as now like we have to totally dictate our care around what the insurance allows. So if you if you were to think of it like okay like use your insurance but like things aren't done after that and they shouldn't it, it shouldn't be viewed that way where like we like once there's a discharge they're no longer like supposed to get physical therapy anymore or something like that or or we're supposed to speed up the way that we look at things because of this like looming insurance limitation but it like use what it, what insurance you have, but then there, there's always going to be a need for more. There's always going to be like the person who's got that, that education can give you more information, hopefully for forever. Right. And like in other fields tend to work like this. Like I have a financial advisor because that's not my field. Right. I'm not, you know, I hopefully I'll probably need this guy forever. Right. Just because he's, he's knowing more than I am because he's got a leg up on me because he's got more time 
in you know under his uh, in the books right like understanding that material right so that's that's kind of how i view now like our, our how our field can be but like it's been limited in many ways by just the way that we view insurance not because insurance is, is problematic right it's good to supplement people to, to be able to pay for things but it, it now has created sort of a, an idea or like a, a way of thinking that how physical therapy should be that need not be that way and i and I think just even the collaboration between in-network and out-of-network therapists is is great because like you just want to give people options and understand that like there there's more than one way to do it so that you like you don't have patients just viewing physical therapists as like in one way right like they give us bad names like if we're trying to do good things but it's it's not often the therapist it's the system that the therapist is in that often makes it a bad experience for a patient when they go to physical therapy. Absolutely. And, and we were talking pre, like before we started the podcast about how you're enthusiastic about the direction the profession's going. And I think the profession is going in a, you know, when people hear physical therapy, they think of, in my experience, they think of certain things. It's like stretching, table exercise. And I think there's this whole movement of young movement professionals coming up that are completely changing the game in the way that people view and feel about physical therapy. And I think you're one of the the people that's driving that change. And, and I thank you for that. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah. I think the, uh, just to, to step in, like the, the fitness space is a really important kind of connector to like what we're talking about is like how to, to move like our profession forward. Like I find like the more young therapists that I see that also have some type of connection to following people in fitness or are like find fitness important themselves. They, they have a better understanding of that connection or like where our field can go than than those that don't have that connection to fitness. So it's, you know, and, and I'm sure that like your experience is, is likely similar. I know you work hand in hand with people that are strength and conditioning professionals as if, you know, they're your colleagues as much as any therapist is, right? Mm -hmm. So there, and, and I know early in my career, like I learned more from strength and conditioning professionals than I did from PTs or at least, you know, different, but I learned a ton from training different conditioning professionals just because that was a weakness. That was a hole in our formal education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would completely agree with you on that, where I think I would, most of what I've learned when you're looking at movement as through the lens we are, where it's just a continuum. And we've, I've, we've talked about this before, and I've talked about this on other podcasts where the squat pattern is a continuum of sitting on the toilet all the way up to squatting 500 pounds. And where does the person fit? That's not necessarily taught in PT school. And I think when you're starting to get into the fitness world and understanding these coaches that are seeing thousands of athletes a year or they're writing thousands of programs a year, they're movement professionals that we can learn a ton from. Right. You know, and I and I, I would agree with you. And as as we're looking at physical therapists as coaches, we need to understand that many of the strength coaches and personal trainers out there, um, there's very good ones that I would trust to work people through injury. They might not have the ability to diagnose because they don't, don't have that formal education, but they absolutely know how to work with a tendinopathy or, you know, change a technique on a squat pattern to help unload the back or take some knee pain away or any of that kind of stuff, just because they've gotten the reps and they've gotten the, and co the coaching ability to make adjustments on different types of, of athletes, of body types, of learners, all of that kind of stuff. So they're a great resource for young professionals in the physical therapy space coming up. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think on the other side of that, there is 
if you if you have that base formal education in physical therapy, like it it is decently easy to I think mold that into a good strength and conditioning coach too. Or like it, it's a nice foundation. It's just that you you can't stop there. You you have to look into the fitness space, and I and the two work really well together. So you know. I, there, there's sort of sometimes the the over response to like bad physical therapy is that now like the physical therapy education is useless, right? And that's mm-hmm. we know that's not true. It's just that it it doesn't stop there, which it shouldn't for any profession, right? So, but I I do think it's important to look beyond maybe what's coming from like the APTA for, and and go into some you know, into the, the fitness space and you will be able to really leverage your PT education quite well. And I think quite quickly, like, you, cause you're already coming in with like a strong anatomy and kinesiology background and, and that really helps, but you, you can't yeah. just take that and sort of like guess about how movement works without actually getting into the trenches and, and doing the movement and learning about, you know, movement from, from a fitness perspective, because what we're supposed to be doing in clinics is strengthening people, trying to get them more powerful, right? Like mm-hmm. around injury. But like we really, I didn't have a good education of how to do that until I started looking into the fitness space. Well, right? like that's, it, what's so, <laughs> that's what's so funny. There's all this research on mortality and grip strength and maintaining power and falls and all that, but there's no great education for physical therapists on programming power and programming yeah. grip strength, right? So I think you're right. It's how are we translating the research that we're finding into good programming that's adding progressive load and following programming principles to get the change that we want to change, to help impact the person based on the research. And right. that's that education isn't always there. But you just brought up to the experience in the trenches, which is something that you spend a lot of time on. You've accomplished so many great things and some of the certifications that you've gotten. Tell us about, you know, maybe if you could expand upon a little bit of your belief of getting into experience certain things and maybe putting yourself in the trenches so you understand what patients are feeling, what they need to do to get to where they want to go. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your history and exposing yourself to all these different exercise techniques? Because I know you're doing a, a couple right now when you've gone on jump programs. And can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'll back up to like, I, I grew up the son of a basketball coach. So I was like, my, I was always around sports and, and basketball was like a big part of my life. And although I'm 510 it, it maybe I should have picked another sport but like it I did learn a lot about coaching and how to get better at things through sport right and th- that led me to want to be a physical therapist although I didn't think it was what it is now you know what I mean like in, and that's I think that's fine so you you learn about like what your job is as you go but that's what like gave me some ambition to look in that direction and as I got into more of the physical therapy space, like I had stopped playing basketball in college and I, it like sport to me, like turned into fitness, but the way that it turned into fitness was more kind of bodybuilding, more aesthetics when I was in my vain college years. And, and I didn't, I didn't really like connect it to sport until I started like messing around with certain movement practices like kettlebells, and, and CrossFit, like, so uh, kettlebells came first for me in that, but they weren't formal. It was just sort of like, I was messing around with other trainers in my first job and it, it, it felt very different. And I, I have to admit, like the first time it was introduced to me, it was just like, 
I was confused by it because I was so used to just doing like bodybuilding sets of 10 and bench press and things like that. So mm-hmm. it was almost like I had to relearn to do athletic movements through fitness. But then once that became like something that I, I could see the value in, it became like, okay, I'm not an athlete anymore, but I could still feel like an athlete through training. And I wasn't doing that the way I was training before. Mm-hmm. So kettlebells were like that initial kind of integration into that. And then I, then I started looking into CrossFit, just doing it like independently, just going on online and following the programs. And that felt good to me. You know, I think I had like a base of fitness already that I was able, able to not hurt myself, you know, like right, right off the bat before I like knew more about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I looked more down those lines and I got my level one and I started coaching at a gym that was close to my house. And like just getting into that community was like actually a, a big deal for me because I started to view like what I could do as a therapist differently when I was just around more people, but also like there was a very specific movement that I could look at and say, okay, you got hurt or you, you hurt when you do this, as opposed to it being like someone coming in with a diagnosis that says I have a rotator cuff injury, like, but it's not specific to the thing that it hurts with, mm-hmm. with, with CrossFit, it started to change my, my way of thinking where it's, it's not so much like, I don't really care about the specific diagnosis. I care about what it hurts with, because then I can change the width. Right. I could change like how you do that thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just totally started to make me think differently about like how I'm assessing. I mean, that came hand in hand with like the FMS and, and all of that work that I, I, have, I was doing at the same time, which start, started to make me think about things in, in that way, too. So I was kind of melding all those different models together. But I was really in the trenches as a coach. And also like I was a recreational athlete through CrossFit and it made me feel like an athlete again in a very cool way, but in a more versatile way than I was as a basketball player. Like I had to start working on mobility in a way that like, you know, basketball players just don't have because they don't, unless they like are trying to work on it, but like, it's just not part of the the game. So I had to just work on all these different angles that didn't come naturally to me. And it felt good. Like, especially when I was in my twenties, but I was getting older and I just felt like, okay, like in some ways I felt like I was in the best shape of my life because I was doing more versatile things. And, but that also, you know, was able to carry over to how I was able to look at the body when I was assessing patients with injury or, you know, as a personal trainer in fitness. Mm-hmm. And so like, that's, I think that led me to some other things, but now I'm still like deeper into kettlebells, like in the strong first world, like I've gone through the, you know, elite certifications. And a lot of times I just, I enjoy doing that because it's, it's a kinesthetic education more than mm-hmm. just like a, like didactic or like you're just an auditory, like you're reading something or listening to something, it becomes like, I, in order for me to pass this test, I have to show myself, like I show others that I can physically do it. And then I have to go through the training to do that, which is kind of rare. Even in my CrossFit certification, there wasn't that you had to like practice the movements, but you didn't get tested on the movements. So in Strong First, they, they actually test you on them. And, and when you, when you pass the test, like you're, you're decently fit. Yeah. Right? Like, just at least in, in that realm of what you're getting tested on. So it's, it's worth your time. And I feel like it's, that's been probably the community that I've been the closest with moving forward. And I still kind of like the challenges that they offer. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Rise Education Platform. Rise stands for Rehab Integrated into Sports Education. 
We offer solutions for business owners who want to bring more athletes into their practice, as well as clinicians to help them better understand how to integrate sports performance metrics into the rehab setting. Our 12-week master's class for clinicians offers solutions for clinicians to begin to implement these ideas right away. And our business mentorship helps business owners figure out the solutions that best suit their business's needs. Visit sportsrehabeducation.com for more information. Yeah, and I, I think that's huge because what I, in my experience with continuing education is it's like you learn all of this didactic material and then you struggle with the application where you're like sent off to apply it on your own without a whole lot of guidance. So mm-hmm. you get back and if you really commit to trying to learn the things, you feel like a novice when you're those first couple of weeks in the clinic. But when you're going through some of those more kinesthetic, you know, commu- certifications and entering into the community, it, it you get a feel for it. You understand what your patient's going to feel or your client's going to feel. And then it seems like you have support and coaching leading up to it. And then afterwards as well, because you do like, especially when you're going through the tr- strong first stuff, like it takes months of training to be able to pass those tests. And it, I, f- I feel like you get more of a feel in understanding the things you need to do to be able to, to perform the movements, which is good. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it also makes a nice framework for actually personal training at this point for me, where especially with Zoom, where people had to do a lot of stuff from home, building their kettlebell collection at home was easier than, you know, having to do all the equipment that I have in my gym, like where, you know, barbells, rings and things like that. So just using the, the movements that I had to train in order to get certified and using some of the standards there as like goals became very useful for you know, just using limited equipment to, to make progress. Yeah, absolutely. Let's parlay that right into, I know through the pandemic, it just on our brief conversations, it seemed like you did really well and were able to pivot where most of your stuff prior to the pandemic was in person, in your gym doing it. But it, based on our conversations, it seems like you were able to pivot really well into some of the Zoom sessions. And now that's a, a decent part of your business. Is that something you're continuing to do? And that's an offering that you found successful with many of your clients, both new and old? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would say it's, it's more the longer term clients that have taken to that and kept to it, some of them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really opened a lot of doors, but it, it also made me have to change the way I think about programming. Like, you know, I alluded to with just you have less equipment, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be like less progress. It's just in some ways it simplifies things where it's like, okay, we're going to just make progress on these specific movements, but it becomes more obvious to the client that they're making progress because there's certain things on repeat more than if somebody comes in and there's more options, the you know, you fall into the line of thinking where it's like, I got to change it up more frequently. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, there's some detriment to that. Right. And I definitely saw, you know, people move forward with things because they're, we were just doing more of the same stuff and it's just easier to see progress that way. And that, that was valuable. And, and it was good feedback from, from clients on that. The other major thing is, is I, I have a lot of clients that have, they're traveling a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they, they have homes in, different parts of the, the country. So I'm able to still see them when they're on, in a vacation home or something like that. And that was, that's huge, right? Cause it's some of my longest term clients and like my best relationships, mm-hmm. they might be in like Vermont for several months yeah. and I would have maybe lost that relationship, but now it's like maintaining it and 
in sort of like in, in some ways it feels like nothing's changed and it's weird because like when I see people in person, they look mm -hmm. different. And, yeah. and like, I, I'm not, I'm surprised by that. Right. It's just like someone in person looks different than somebody on zoom, but I'm so used to seeing them two to three times a week still on zoom that I yeah. feel like nothing's been lost until they actually do come in in person. But that opportunity has been, been great to just maintain relationships and, and keep things going. And it, it makes me appreciate that that's what clients, are, a lot of clients are actually interested in more than like a fancy space mm -hmm. is they're, they're interested in a relationship with someone they trust right. and like they're, they're willing to, you know, not find someone new, even if they're like, you know, in some different part of the country, just because they've, like you've earned their trust. And, and that's, that's a huge thing to have to like find again from somebody else. Right. So I appreciate that for my clients. And, and I would say like for, right from the get go to make it an easier pivot. I mean, it was like a hundred percent, just my clients being willing to mess with that <laughs> and see how it worked. And many of them did it. And, and I'm appreciative of that. And, it, and that was definitely easier for my fitness clients than to have to pivot from a physical therapy perspective. But I did that like there were times where I, I got to do that and it actually opened some doors up for like family members that don't live close to me or people that I went to high school with. I was able to just do a consult with them on zoom. And it, like, I, I didn't think of that as a possibility before. And now it's like, yeah, like when people ask me questions that like our family members, I'm not going to give them like an email. I'm going to like, let's do a zoom call. Like it's just going to be easier that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it absolutely makes things easier. And, and I think the, the people's willingness to switch to that speaks to the type of relationship builder you are. And I think you're right. Like people will follow relationships and trust. And I think you've done a great job with that. So that that made it easy for your people. Absolutely. I also want to speak, we've, we've kind of briefly touched on kind of your payment model and being out of network. Do you mind expanding on that a little bit? Because like my clinic, just to let people know how, you know, if they wanted to do a session with you, like, you know, for me, physical therapy, it's insurance model. We, we do that. But for you, your model is a little bit different and it's not as widespread. How would, you know, what's your payment model look like? Because we've mentioned a couple of times that you're out of network. Yeah, I would just say it's like, it's simply what you would expect if you were to pay for personal training. Mm -hmm. And then I just extend that to physical therapy. So I do have different rates for physical therapy than I do for personal training, mm -hmm. but it's, it's the same relationship you would expect to get if you went to a personal trainer, which is simpler, right? It's just like, you're paying me for your time. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, and I'm changing, I, you know, I changed my rates based on my availability, you know, in, in many ways, like, so, and I'm trying to keep up with the people that have similar models in the area, but for, for the most part, like without like being, you know, you can go on, on my website and my rates are online there. Like I, I try to like be as transparent as possible because I think that's one of the things that frustrated the hell out of me when I was in network mm -hmm. is, and I'm, I'm sure you deal with this all the time is like you, there's more overhead by far to get paid. Yep. Right. But then there's like this purposeful confusion for both the practitioner mm -hmm. and the client that just feels so inefficient. And it, it's a major part of what limits the model, you know, like what limits the insurance model. If it was just like, on third party payer paying, that's right. there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. Like it's just it's the confusion around that and all of the extra red tape that gets in the way of like actually doing the best for your client or patient mm -hmm. that frustrated me. So I'm just I try to be as transparent as possible. 
The other thing is like looking at, so the typical physical therapy model and their insurance would be like, you want to see someone like two to three times a week through their insurance, or that's what I was used to in the clinic mm. because I might be more expensive up front. Like I don't expect to see people as frequently for, especially for physical therapy. Like I will often ask them like, can you use your insurance somewhere while you're seeing me less frequently? Right. Right. And sometimes people will already be in, in network therapy. I'm seeing this more frequently now. And then they'll still just want me as like a supplement where they're just going to come in and like, I'll consult, consult with them. And I'll, I'll even like look at their home exercises and just say like, yeah, I'll give, let me give you my take on these. These are, they're all fine. Like I don't ever look at an exercise and say like, this is useless, but I will just like caution people on like, this is what, what I've seen in the past, like where the, your intention gets lost because you're trying to count reps or something like that. So like a session where I'm just breaking down an exercise because I get more time with people can be really valuable sometimes. But like, I will never tell them like, don't go to your, your in-network physical therapy. Like that's just, I don't believe in that. And I think like more time is always better with a professional, but having some one-on-one -on -one time with somebody that like can, can break things down a little different, like can really amplify what you're getting in your in-network sessions. So I try to present that so that it doesn't feel like you need to come in and see me as frequently. Like I'll, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, t I'll ask people like, what do you think you, you can fit in? My schedule really isn't allowing for much more than like a couple of half hours a week at this point. Mm -hmm. So like, it's harder for, for me to find hours. And that would be like, usually what I'm trying to do my first session. So at, at this point, it's, it's kind of, I, I'm, it's just more of like a availability thing, but yeah. I, I'm usually pushing that because I don't want people to feel like they're getting priced out, but I don't, I, I think they have to view how they come in and use the sessions differently. Yeah. And I'm curious too, like how, so you, you offer half hour sessions and you offer hour sessions, correct? Mm -hmm. Right. How does that work and how do those differ? Like when someone's doing a half hour, do you expect them to come in and warm up and just be ready to go at, you know, 30 minutes, whereas like the hours you're taking them through some of the movement prep stuff. Like do, how do those sessions vary differently? Whereas like someone who's used to having an hour of physical therapy or an hour of personal training and they're, you know, what I've, in my experience, I've seen, well, I want an hour, but you only have a half hour to give. How mm -hmm. would you describe that to someone where you can still get the same benefit of, out of a half hour than when you're used to getting an hour and that, that's what you think you want, but maybe a half hour would be fine. Well, so the way I like to view it is like, an hour is not enough either, right? Yeah. Like, cause it's, it's, it's just about, it's like some assistance to somebody's health plan for their whole life, right? Like, so whether it's a half hour or an hour, it's just like, you're, you're getting an education, hopefully in that half hour. Like as far as how I set up sessions, if I, if it's a training client for half hours, like it, they sh they will have to do kind of their own warm up or I will flow a warm up like into a workout but most of the time like I don't I don't spend a lot of time with warm ups because like if I'm doing say strength training and what my clientele isn't like they're not high level athletes for the most part if they are they are usually coming in to see me for not like high performance fitness they're coming in to see me for like the accessory stuff to like make sure that they don't get hurt, you know, type of, you know, so it's just, I think it has, has a lot to do with the clientele, mm -hmm. but 
like uh, the first couple sets, if we're doing strength work, will be lighter. And then it that is sort of their warm up and it blends right into I'm not really pushing people too close to like 90 plus percent of max, but like I'm letting each set build. And I find that to be useful for a lot of the clientele I have because their starting point is is often they've never even done the movement at all that I'm showing them for the first time. Right. So when you have a beginner, I think like warm ups just need they look different. Right. And they, they don't need to be as extensive. And I could do another half hour session if it is more like therapeutic or to, to look more like a warm up or to educate someone on how to create their own warm up. So I feel it's like every session can become its own thing. And this is where like online programming, I felt helped with more continuity in like certain clients that I had that really needed that continuity. Mm-hmm. It, it was better for them to do it on their own with me writing them a program than actually using the sessions that they came in for as that kind of continuity of programming. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because they, they would need a little bit more time or they, w- they would have to do more on their own. The other thing I allow for, and is, is just as long as like, the space allows for it, is that I have a limited amount of like cardio equipment, but like I just tell clients like you can come in a half hour early if you want and do use the cardio equipment, like, and just make that, or you can stay afterwards, you know, like I'll work around you and you can stretch, you can do whatever you want to do. Like I want to promote more independence in my clients as much as possible. Like, but, and I, and I'm not worried that I'm going to kind of lose a client by doing that because I, I still like have confidence that I will be able to educate them in ways that are useful. Right. So like, I just think it's the sessions to me, they're not like, there's not an end point to them in that, like, okay, after a half hour, that's all they would need to do for the day. But it, and it's plenty of time to get enough sets of say, like a strength day in or a, you know, if I wanted to do conditioning, it's, you know, it's plenty of time for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think in there, you said, I think that's what's so empowering about your style of fitness is that you like you said it in there you're trying to educate people so that they can be on their own as much as they can and then use you as a consultant to help guide their their progress right Right. and i think so many of our colleagues that we associate ourselves with have that growth mindset where it's how can we work together and empower the the patient or the client to to get to where they need to be because they don't like they don't always need us but we need to educate them as coaches to to help them form lifelong habits to get them and main, get them where they want and maintain that. So they don't right. have these ups and downs and and yo-yo fitness and yo-yo dieting programs that we found unsustainable. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, the biggest adjustments I've I've had to make with just the the way that sessions are are formatted is I've done a lot of education recently on programming, just you know, kind of like programming for performance, programming for like how I would want to program for myself if I was doing like powerlifting. But like it, it always takes it takes more than an hour typically to to do to, to do all of it. Mm-hmm. So you you have to appreciate that where it's like I can show people like a program, but they would have to have more time than than my sessions, even if they were all coming in for an hour. So there's always going to have to be that extra. But but for the most part, like I don't have clients that would want to take like a verbatim program for powerlifting or a verbatim program for Olympic lifting. So looking at each session over the course of months, over the course of years, as you're, I'm not doing that many different movements, 
Mm-hmm. You know, so I can see somebody who like if I started them with some type of box squat, you know, five years ago, like where they are now, it's like obviously different. And, you know, and, and they know it's obviously different. And the same thing with like a kettlebell deadlift, which can just like even progressing like a kettlebell sumo deadlift to using the barbell at all or using like a trap bar at all. Like to me, that, that can be a pretty specific continuum. Mm-hmm. And I, like I have a clientele that I can move slowly and and they will be satisfied with that slow like linear progress of saying like you're doing a little bit more weight every time we come in and that can take a long time till they actually get anywhere near what would be their max because so much of the early stuff is just right it's teaching the movement but also it's, it's breaking the psychological barrier that they're afraid of the movement so i i make things easier than they would need to be for a lot of my clients, but they don't realize that it's actually easier than they would need to be. And I don't want to like push them to say like, okay, you could do way more than this. Like I might say that it's like, that, well, let's just stay on the, the process we're going, but believe me, you can do more than that. I've seen people mm-hmm. lift heavy and that's not heavy for you, but mm-hmm. I don't put them into where it is heavy until like they've gone through every step of like, let's do the next increment of weight, the next increment of weight. And that's, that wouldn't work for every client, but like yeah. the clients that come in that are, the CrossFitters, like I'm, I'm familiar there. I, I know how to you know, kind of change my mentality and say, okay, let's get you closer to like your 80% one RM. Like they usually have that information in their head already if they're like, you know, athletes. So then I start just talking a different language in a way to, to that clientele, but the movements end up being the same. And I still think the idea of trying to find like progressive adaptation is the same. It's just that that psychological barrier is going to be different for everybody. So like it, 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 it becomes easier actually when you work with people that are, you know, like kind of just learning new movements when you're working with beginners, just because you can really make linear change for a long period of time just by adding the next increment of weight, just because you made it probably easier than it needed to be up front, but that's what they needed. Right. So, so how would you describe your, the client that best fits into your practice right now? Uh, so probably someone definitely over 50. Mm-hmm. I, I see more females than males, but like, I don't necessarily have a preference. You know what I mean? Like I just, I think because I have more clients that are female, like those are some of my better client relationships, but I have mm-hmm. some really good relationships with my male clients too. Yeah. But I do like the, the older adult and then, and that's, I also I enjoy the challenge of working with an athlete that is like doing it like a higher level athlete that I have to manage their, their volume. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not trying to get them better at their sport. I'm just actually trying to work around all the volume that they're doing. Yeah. And that's a different challenge, but it's, it's almost inverse of what I, I thought coming out of school where like I thought working with the, the high level athlete would be like you get to do more high level things. And it's more like, at least from what I see, it's I'm, I'm working on them more like where I have to be more careful Yeah. where with somebody who is, you know, a, an adult just trying to, you know, like be healthier than they've ever been or, or get stronger. Like you can explore more things. You're not trying to hurt anybody, but like they, they're, they're not getting as much volume from other things. So like, your job in, in many ways is to try to improve their athleticism or with an athlete that already has a high level of athleticism. I'm trying to, you know, show them their, their weaknesses in some ways, but not improving their athleticism. It might be just like showing them a hole in their mobility. So it's, it's 
doing like more boring things with athletes. And then it's, I feel like more exciting things with the general population at this point. I a hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. That <laughs> is like the inverse of what you expected, yeah. but, but I also within that, I recognize some of my limitations with the performance programming and mm-hmm. that's when you just refer out. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm not, and, and I think you have to you refer out, not just because of your own, like limitations from an education standpoint, but just also like in the, what the expectation of the client, but also in the setup of the, the place that you go. Like I refer out all the time for manual therapy, although I have a, a good background in manual therapy, just because I don't, I don't want to put my hands on people as often. So I'm like losing my manual therapy, practical mm-hmm. skills compared to someone who puts their hands on someone every day. And I'm just, I'm starting to appreciate that more and more where like scope isn't about necessarily your cognitive knowledge, but it could be just about like, what are you doing the most in any one period of time? Right. Right. And I'd say the same thing with like, like programming for, for fitness. Like you want to send people somewhere where it's just like more, even if it's like a small group versus one-on-one, like Mm -hmm. just because they're getting more of that continuity of of progression and like, like true coach, you, you've done true coach. And I started doing some true coach. Like I don't use it with a lot of clients, but I found like a ton of benefit for that continuity of care because it is really just sometimes like a set it and forget it, like almost like a copy and paste. And then you add the next little thing that you want to progress with. Yep. And it, in that boredom of like, if, if you did that in person, that would seem like just so tedious, but like to push that on to a client that's responsible and like already you know, kicking butt in their sport and they have that drive, like just showing them, Hey, here's your template. Just let me know when, it, if it gets too hard or you have an issue, like I'll, I'll modify it, but it's like, just, take it and run with it. Like I saw, I saw like a huge difference in those type of clients where actually I got out of my own way pretty much by just having them do like true coach stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what's next for you? It seems like you're at a really good spot. You're what, six years in business, you're going on six and you, mm-hmm. you found this good spot with good clientele schedules full. You're, you you're continued on with, you know, you're taking great ed, continuing education. What's next for, for Chris? Well, so I, I, because of you, I've gotten into like just writing, like writing a book. I, you know, I wrote two books now and they're just self-published, but they're very, they're meaningful for me because they're sort of like, it's almost like journaling, but then I edit the journaling later on Mm -hmm. and it really helps me put my thoughts into a structure. So I'm kind of working on a a third book right now that I want to be a little bit more coherent to Mm -hmm. like like my system of connecting fitness and, and rehab. And it's something I've wanted to do for a while. And like, I, I'm hoping it actually comes to fruition, <laughs> like, because it, it is taking the, the idea of like the functional screens that we have patients fill out about mm-hmm. function, right? Like that they have to actually like subjectively write, like, what is your, your biggest limited action? Is it, like you, you have the most limitation with walking, you have the most limitation with kneeling, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Taking that subjective piece and really trying to deconstruct it into a more objective way of looking at it. Because I, I think that's sort of missing in, uh, at least formally, in how we, we look at, you know, what we ask of, of patients. Like we're, we have these scales that are actually used in research a lot that are, are just like a subjective report of what people are having issues with from a functional standpoint. Mm-hmm. But we don't really have like a good way to break each one of those 
movements down or at least like a standardized way. So I want to try to create something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm, I, you know, trying to write about now because I feel like at least the, a book is easier for me to do, believe it or not, than trying to like create some type of continuing education format. And then down the line with that, I, I wouldn't mind trying to teach some of the things I've, I've written about, you know, yeah. but it's just like, I'm kind of taking it one day at a time. Like, cause with book writing it, it has to be that for me, I found where it's like, okay, I do like a half hour, 20 minutes a day. And then it turns into something, but I really don't give myself a deadline because then it makes it feel like something else. It's like, it's not as I, I'd be less likely to finish it, believe it or not, if I like kind of gave myself more of a deadline. So that's certainly one piece of it. I think from like my physical business, like I, I am looking at, I'm waiting for the right person. And I think I, I have some people in mind that I would I'd like to try to add on like another person into, to this model. Um, but it like, I'm, I'm not, I'm very patient with that because I, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people come in here that as students and just to, to observe and even people that I know are like really good, but it's just like, this model is, is different and it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to actually kind of get another person off the ground. So they have to be com- comfortable kind of like marketing themselves and they have to be the right person to really have the ambition to go above and beyond. So yeah. like, that's, that's kind of what I'm looking for. But we'll see. We'll see how that, that comes up. But that, I would say that would be a hopeful next step. Nice. And I must say, I'm impressed that you're on your third book because with <laughs> two kids, a business owner, all the certifications and training that you do to find the time to you know be that prolific and, and working on your third book, all I did was take pictures and write in a couple of things. Like I didn't, there's no thoughts on paper, but I'm impressed that you're, you're able to find the time to, to make that happen. And, and what you put out there is great. I appreciate that. Yeah. That means a lot coming from you, but no, you're absolutely were the inspiration and just like, I mean, I think we've, we've both gone through this now of like how I, an initial, my initial perspective of being an author was mm. very different, like five years ago than it is now. And I think like, because of technology and self-publishing and things like Fiverr, where, you know, you can mm-hmm. just hire like kind of freelancers to do a lot of different things for, for not that much money. It, it becomes I think easier to at least self-publish a work and it it doesn't have to be about like making money off of the work but it can be about structuring your thoughts and eventually you know maybe it turns into something but it's it's out there and it's something like like i i'm i'm certainly i still vouch for the material that's in there even in my first book although you expect that your your mentality will change and i'm happy with with what i what i wrote i'm, I'm reviewing some of my older writing because I'm like kind of taking some of it to add it on to like mm-hmm. what, what is going to be like in the, the next book. And I was just like, Oh, I would have wrote that a little differently here and there. So it's, it's always hard to like re read your own work. But I think it's like dangerous to do so. Cause you'll just, you'll never put something out there because it's just, ne- it's never going to be yep. good. It's like he- hearing yourself talk, right? Like <laughs> it just becomes like, you have to kind of get used to that. And it, there's an initial discomfort to it, but, now at this point, man, like you got me into thinking differently about writing and about like that kind of author piece and, and you know, just got me looking into different things, which now like I have a, a better grasp for. So I there's like a lot less intimidation in trying to write a book. And I think you're right. Like I, I one time I just put together a PowerPoint presentation of my philosophy at the time. And I should probably go back and find it and tweak it or whatever. But I think you're right. There's a lot of value in 
putting together all of your education, what your current philosophy is in a book, because there's a lot of value in that for people. And it can be cathartic in a way to help you work through maybe some of the sticking points and say, oh, you know what, wait, this is how I can get around that, or this is how I can close this gap, or you can help tease out some of your gaps in knowledge or whatever. Like I think putting it down on paper and really finding the continuity and how you treat people and it, it holds you accountable for making sure you make the best change as well. Absolutely. So I think yeah. it's good what you're doing and looking revisiting it every couple of years. I think it's great. Definitely. Nice. So in closing, we ask everybody a final five questions, kind of rapid fire, just to give people a deeper insight into who, who Chris is as a, as a person, because as we talked about, it's not always about what you know, it's about the relationships that you build and if it's the right fit and all that kind of stuff. So let's get started. All right. Look forward to it. What would be your walkout song? Mm. Uh, if I had to say, like, if I was going out into a fight <laughs> or something like a UFC fighter, or if I was the closer for uh, a baseball team mm-hmm. in this moment, which is a, it's, it's a rock band I'm very familiar with, but I don't know if everyone else would be, but they have a female lead who's just amazing the song would be called big bad wolf. So that's, it's a little more aggressive. Um, mm-hmm. So that would be like sort of my real aggressive walkout song. Mm-hmm. But if I could add two more, just depending on the, the scenario. So like if for a team sport, I still would think about Start Me Up from the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. with the Continental Drift intro from the album Flashpoint, because that's what I came out to <laughs> for like five, four years in high school. So okay. and, it, and it was meaningful, like for our whole school, like from the time, like our school started we merged with other schools in like 92 mm-hmm. so from that point on like it had just been like a tradition that that was our come out song for the team okay. so like that's still like when i whenever i hear that I'm, I'm ready like i'm ready to go play and then for another song that i would still kind of put in there for my wedding i walked out to ladies and gentlemen by saliva which was a great intro song for for us and my wife and i kind of connected but we both agreed on a song which mm-hmm. It can be surprised, but we actually have very similar taste in music. So that that still would be another walkout song. So I think it depends on the scenario, but just like the most hardcore, check out In This Moment, Big Bad Wolf. Love it. Split cool. lyrics, though. I'll tell <laughs> I, I love the specificity of that and the, the yeah. thought you put into the different scenarios. It's great. What's your favorite exercise? So again, I'll, I'll start with just broadly. I think it's the, the kettlebell snatch because I think I can do the most versatile stuff with it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, as opposed, I like, Olympic lifting with barbells, but like it's more of a setup where with a, a kettlebell snatch, I could just sort of grab and go. I don't need shoes on. <laughs> and I just like, and I, and I do a lot of that. If I, if I have a heart rate monitor on, like, and I've been doing this a lot over the last couple of years where I'm actually monitoring what exercises get my heart rate into a cardiovascular zone the easiest. Mm-hmm. That's one of them. And absolutely. And one of them where I feel like I feel almost like biomechanically or uh, orthopedically better afterwards where like running is another one that I really I'm starting to enjoy as long as I don't do it too long without taking breaks. Mm-hmm. Like I like sprinting. I like take, doing kind of like interval running because that gets my heart rate up right away. But I do feel like I can't do too much of that without feeling a little bit beat up. Mm-hmm. So like kettlebell snatch would be where I would start. If I could also add another way of thinking about this, because like from a, a like I, I think of every thing you're trying to train might have a different movement that would be more optimal. So like my favorite upper body strength, like absolute strength exercise is a kettlebell strict press Mm -hmm. with my favorite absolute strength exercise is traditional deadlift. 
And so, and then like for hypertrophy, I'm, I'm going bench press upper body and I'm going back squat lower body. Like if I just want to like two big bang for your bucks, like just want to feel some size before going to the, the beach or something like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Love it. One food for the rest of your life. What would you eat? Tacos. That, that one's kind of simple. With guacamole? No, you know, I'm, I'm very plain. Now I, I've gotten, I, I, there's like a different experience for me if I go like good, authentic, kind of Mexican taqueria versus mm-hmm. like old El Paso taco kit. But yeah. I love the old El Paso taco kit. That's what my, I, I grew up with. Like wh- when it was my birthday, I had my birthday meal. I'd be like, mom, just make me tacos. And mm-hmm. I'd put 12 of them away and it would just be meat and cheese. That's yep. it. Like I just have like the, and I'll, I'll put a lot of cheese on there, but I, I'm simple that way. And I still love that. One of the things I love about you, Chris, and you've shown it in this is how thoughtful you are and how mindful of different experiences you are. I, I love it where you, you, you just, I, I don't think you seem like you don't go through life just haphazardly. Like you're taking it in, you're very present in the moment and you're mindful of every experience. And, and that's one of the things that I really appreciate about you. It means a lot. Appreciate it. Going off of that, what's your guilty pleasure? Hmm. So if we're, if we're talking about food, like I, I don't tend to feel too guilty about food that much because mm-hmm. I usually have it like planned out. But like Oreos are going to be one of those things that would traditionally be a guilty pleasure. But I kind of have them every night. And I like, <laughs> you know, I, I I know exactly how many I want to have. Like I had yeah. four last night. It fit into, you know, what I was trying to eat. Yep. So I, I, lately I haven't been feeling that guilty around food. Another category I can think of is like I'm a, I'm a big fan of rom-coms. So mm-hmm. that could be like a, a guilty pleasure for me. Absolutely. Um, but I don't know. Like pleasure. I don't, I don't. At this point in my life, I don't feel that guilty about it. That it's just, it is. Maybe I would have when I was in my twenties. But here's something I like. I, I thought about where I, I like actually feel guilty afterwards, but in the moment I feel pleasure. Is like taking on an argument that I know I shouldn't take on. <laughs> like, and so like you think about with, and this happens like when you're working with people, mm-hmm. where people will dump their sort of political views on you, and I just like, I just I for the most part I try to listen. But yeah. sometimes like, I'll be like, I got to say something this time. And yeah. I, I always, it never like to me, I always feel regret after doing that. But mm-hmm. in the moment it was just like, for some reason it felt right. Like to, to, to kind of take on a debate that maybe I, I should have let go. That's a guilty pleasure. I have to admit. <laughs> I have to ask, so what's your favorite rom-com? So any, anything with Hugh Grant, like, or like I, my first Valentine's day with my now wife, she got me, I made her strawberry French toast mm-hmm. and she got me two rom-coms, one, both with Hugh Grant, Love Actually and Notting Hill. So those, those are meaningful. And I would say probably Notting Hill. I mean, I was going to go with Love Actually. Love Actually yeah, is not a but bad. Boom. And then what's your favorite thing about the Philadelphia area? Mm, so that's a good question. Like number one, like the history comes to mind. My dad was a history teacher. Like, so we always like went on like different history trips and Philadelphia, because I grew up in Northeastern PA. So Philadelphia was like always the closest city. Mm-hmm. When we would come to Philly, it would always be for some type of like historical field trip. So like, I, I still look at like center city an old city as like, it's just all about history. And I think that's underestimated, you know, sometimes if you've been here long enough, like how unique that is to the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. But I would also like since I've been here longer now and like I've lived in the Delaware County Delco area for, you know, the last like 12, 15 years, like mm-hmm. how 
even though you're close to a big city, how close it could feel, like how it feels like a small town in a lot of different like suburban pockets. And I, I appreciate that like mix where I could go into the city and get like all of this diversity and culture, but then I can be in like a, a suburb and feel like it's just as close in a town that I'm very familiar with growing up in like the Northeast. Mm-hmm. So like it's that combination I like. And then the food is also, I think, something that people take for granted in Philly. And it's it's the combination of like the food that's not so healthy for you and also mm-hmm. like the, the gourmet food. Like, I, I mean, every place that has its food, but I think there's something, again, unique about Philly. Like how many different foods that come from Philly, I didn't realize until I started living in this area. Absolutely. I think that's the been a common theme. I think Philly is definitely an underrated food town. And then the sense of community that you get in Philly and the surrounding suburbs, I think, is a huge draw for people to the area and and why specifically Delco people don't leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't understand that until I started. We had our clinic and Gar- we have our clinic in Garnet Valley. I never yeah. understood that until, you know, until we started. We were in immersed in the culture. Yeah, absolutely. My uh, my wife, she was an Air Force child, so she grew up, born in Hawaii, but lived all over until about like junior high. And then mm-hmm. her dad was from from Delco, but her whole extended family is from Delco. So I didn't really like appreciate Delco, like just meeting her. But when I met her extended fa- family, that's when I really started to realize like how cl- how like it's a, it's a very specific you know uh, language, <laughs> you know, very specific you know kind of close-knit community and i and i love it and I, and that's where my I mean, kids hopefully will go to school in the springfield school district delco area and, and i'm yeah. like i'm really looking forward to that next part of my life in that nice. community nice so i don't think we've we've said the name of your business where you're located and then finally we should say how people can get a hold of you if they're interested in, in some of your services so can we end on that yeah absolutely so the name of my business now is movement professional i used to have Two different businesses, one for physical therapy and one for move and for personal training, but I've actually just combined it in, into all one now. So it's just movement professional. The website is movementprofessional.com. And that's where you know you can find everything, like the books that I've written, you know, links to social media, uh, and then also just ways to, to contact me. But you can contact me directly, like on my email anytime I'll get back to you. It's Chris at movementprofessional.com. I have a YouTube channel. Uh, we should search Dr. Chris Live, and you'll you'll see it on there. That that I'm putting stuff up kind of routinely, and I'm taking some of the the stuff that I did for my book and trying to like put that on the YouTube channel slowly. So even if my books don't sell that well, I feel like they're not a waste. It's it's content that I can kind of leak out little by little, and I'll probably be doing the, the same thing soon with the the last book I, I just most recently came out with. So yeah, I'm I'm hit or miss on. Instagram and I, I want to do more with it, but I'd say I'm, I have like a more consistent system on YouTube at this point. Perfect. We appreciate you, Chris. You're doing great things, both professionally and personally. You're helping a lot of people. And, and for that, I appreciate you. And, and thanks for all that you do. Absolutely. Thank you, John. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Hey, hold on a second. Don't leave yet. This is your host, Dr. John Herding, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Fitness Philadelphia. If you did, I'm going to ask you to do three simple things. They take less than five minutes and they go such a long way. We really do appreciate it. Number one, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to it. iTunes, Spotify, or whatever it may be. Number two, please leave us a favorable review. Number three, share it. 
put it on social media, talk about it with your friends, send it in a text message, whatever you can do to share this episode because we put a lot of work into it and we want to make sure as many people are getting the value out of it as possible. And lastly, if you'd like to learn more, please go to precisionperformancept.com backslash fitness Philadelphia. Thank you so much. This is Dr. John Herding. This is Fitness Philadelphia and have a great day.